Hi, this is Brent Skousen, the youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. What you are about to hear is a live recording of a university lecture by W. Cleon Skousen as he taught his Old Testament course. We really are fortunate to have these recordings, although at the time they weren't anticipated to be released publicly. As these lectures were recorded live, they are unscripted and unedited. You will feel as though you are actually there. If you are following the Come Follow Me curriculum from The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we have tried to coordinate each lecture with this week's lesson, although there may be some overlap. For those interested in the text Brother Skousen and the students are using, it is published as The Third Thousand Years, written by W. Cleon Skousen, and it is available at bookstores or online at skousen2000.com. And if you prefer listening to the text, there is a new audio version just published this year, which you can download from Amazon, iTunes, or audible.com. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! Well, um... We're not going to quite finish this book, and if you want to improve your grade, go right on through and finish it. You get seven points for each additional assignment until uh, you finish the book. But in lecture, I will not quite finish the book, and you will only be examined up as far as I finish it. Okay? All right. Now, you finished over to page 282, didn't you? I think so. All right, now, <clears throat> let me move right along, because this is, actually, this is an exciting part of the, it uh, seems like I covered a little bit of chapter 13 with you, didn't I? Didn't I tell you a little bit about the evacuation? So let me briefly restate it, and um, then we'll move into some of the details, because this section of the Old Testament is not well understood in the church. Uh, if anything, we have as much misinformation about it and as much... Uh, improper doctrine taught as we do accurate doctrine. And in that sense, uh, the restoration of the gospel has not been really appreciated like it should be because we very frequently are teaching ordinary sectarian doctrines in this area. So uh, one of the motivations that I had in writing these books was to get the first texts in the church on the Old Testament from the church standpoint. All of our institute and um, seminary texts prior to that time were mostly taken from sectarian sources. Only now are these books coming to their own. In the last, uh, well, I think the first one was 1953. So 20 years ago, when the first 2,000 years came out, this was our first attempt to get the LDS point of view into the Old Testament. Uh, as far as the whole text was concerned. Now we're writing all kinds of texts, thank goodness, and the, and the wonderful truths to be taught are coming out. But in many, even in some of the manuals, you'll still get some of these misconceptions uh, with reference to the law of Moses. Uh, we don't have the law of the covenant clear in our minds yet. Uh, we don't know exactly what the carnal commandments were. That's all fuzzy in the minds of the saints. And, uh, and it is of our, sect, uh, of our friends who belong to other churches, too. But we have a contribution to make here because we have more information. And so, uh, drain this out so that when you're in Relief Society or priesthood class and you, you hear a little fuzziness, why, you can hold up your hand, make a, a gentle contribution, you see. Now, as, as they came out of freedom, loaded with gold and precious things and all kinds of ornaments, the Egyptians said, for heaven's sakes, get out of here, just go, will you? 
What do you need to pay you for your slavery? Oh, all right, we'll give it to you. And as the prophets had said centuries before, Israel would go out laden with riches. And uh, they were so overjoyed, but the most worried man in the whole concourse of people was whom? Moses. You get these people out in the desert, they're great for three days until the unleavened bread is gone, no griddle cakes, and water very difficult to find, and they may be in deep trouble. And so they made their first encampment long enough to sort of uh, regroup and get themselves under control at a place called the Booths, uh, which is Succoth. And Brother Klein was kind enough to tell us about the Passover last time, which was most interesting. We really appreciated that. And, um, and now they have a celebration right afterward, you see, or in connection with it, which uh, uh, is the, let's see, what do we call it? In the, the Yes, uh-huh. Where everybody goes out of their home and they put up some stakes and they put a blanket around it and, or something, put some boughs over the top, and they actually... Right. Anything they can get that's improvised. And when, we go, when we're over in Israel at the time that this happens, it's kind of interesting to see everybody with their lovely homes, you see, and they all go out and in the parkway, anywhere where they can build a little booth and, and uh, stay outside for a while and kind of remind themselves what it was like in the pioneer days. And, uh, and so that's actually what the first place is called, Succoth, which is the, is the place of booths. Now, that was just out here. Um, Let's see, that one is out of proportion. I was going to make it bigger, but it isn't very effective. Uh, it's about right here. Uh, this, is, this land is called what? Goshen. And they get over here and they make their first stop about here. And actually the point of the Suez Gulf came up a little higher in those days. It's dried up now. And as they went over toward the one place where they could get around the point of the Gulf and down into Mount Sinai where the Lord had told them to come, uh, the great pillar of fire did a very unusual thing, as you remember. It went back. Now, I told you there were three routes that I wanted you to remember on the way that they could have gotten back into the Promised Land. And one route was to go up and go along the Mediterranean and go into the Promised Land. Here's the Dead Sea right here. Uh, that's the Mediterranean route. The other one was Beth Sheba, Beersheba, excuse me, Beersheba route, which is right straight across through the desert. The other one was the caravan route that would go down along the Red Sea and come up on the other side, go up the Arabic Gulf, and then go either on one side of the Dead Sea or the other. Three routes, three caravan routes, Mediterranean, Beersheba, and the Red Sea route or caravan. And uh, you remember that the cloud took them down here, trapped them, and as soon as the Pharaoh's spies saw that they were trapped against the Red Sea, uh, the, the troops immediately came out, led by the Pharaoh, in charge of 600 chariots to try and force them to come back or be massacred. Um, what, was it bad judgment on the part of Moses that they went down on the west side of that gulf? Who's, who did it? How did he do it? With the pillar. The pillar itself let them down. Then we had that traumatic experience of having the pillar move around behind them and hold back all of the Egyptians long enough for them to go through the, uh, the sea after it was divided. I think I told you about Mr. DeMille's experience, didn't I, uh, with uh, dividing the Red Sea. Did I tell you about that? No. Do you have your hand up? 
uh, right while they were uh, up, up here, almost from the beginning. As soon as they got out on the desert, here's this great cloud that rises among, uh, right in front of them. And when they camp at night, it, it, it radiates light and it lights up the whole camp, did their entire route. Pillar of cloud by day, going moving right in front of them. And at night it was brilliant with fire. And whenever God visited Moses to talk with him, the cloud would, even in the daytime, would just radiate the glory of the presence of God. Now, when Mr. DeMille was trying to produce this film uh, on the Ten Commandments, didn't I tell you about that? Maybe it was the other class. I think I got ahead of, in the other class. Anyway, he sat down with his consultants and, and he said, now I don't want this to be just the wind blowing back the water like so many have rationalized it. I want it to be just like it says it is in the Bible, where the wind came and blew upon the waters, but they piled up so that they were walls of water on either side. I said, that's what I want. I want walls of water on either side. And then I want the children of Israel marching through on dry land. And uh, the technician said, well, Mr. DeMille, <clears throat> how do you propose to do that? Well, he said, it uh, won't be easy. It's only been done once before. <laughs> but in any event, I was in Hollywood on the Paramount lot when they filmed it, and it was fantastic. What they had done was to take some of these huge, big steel mill buckets that ordinarily pour steel, and they had them arranged electronic. This cost a million dollars to set this up, and another million dollars for damages. <laughs> And they had the, the one whole section of the Paramount lot built into a huge reservoir. And then they had a, a blue backdrop uh, in the back to pick up anything in the, in the distance. All of these huge buckets were filled with water. Uh, well, I suppose three, four of them would hold this much water in the whole room. So you can see how big they are. They're tremendous. And they were arranged so that one would start pouring and, uh, and then the other one would start pouring, and the other would start pouring, until finally the water, it fills up the whole reservoir quite fast and all bubbles up right up to the cameras, you see. So everything gets set and they are filming it from the side and from the top and from the back and, and so forth. And so they press the buttons, they've done it to, without any water in it, now they're gonna do it with water. And the cameras are rolling and the water starts pouring out and uh, and it really was a, a, an amazing effect uh, of it go whoosh, it kind of rolled toward you. And uh, then it came bubbling up right on top of the camera so that you actually saw the water right on the camera. That's where it ended. They got all those shots and Mr. Mills said, all right, excellent. Uh, uh, that was the effect that he wanted and the reservoir broke and water went all over one end of Hollywood cost another million dollars to pay off uh, clothing stores and drug stores and everybody else that was flooded. But anyway, they got their shots. Now here's what they did. They took this and printed it so that it, you not only had it rolling out on one side, which is really all it was, they only filmed one side. They took it and reversed it so that you had it on the other side too. Then they put it backwards so that you saw the water bubbling all over the camera and then it opened right up. It was really a, a really phenomenal. That's the way they did it. They did it by filming just one side and then doubling it, putting the same fill, reverse, you see, and then turning the whole thing backwards 
running the thing backwards so that the water opened up instead of closed down. It closed down later, started opening up. In any event, uh, that's the way they achieved it. If you get a chance to see the Ten Commandments again, uh, a lot of these little little things you, you might find interesting in it now. The, um, the assistant director is in your book, Harry Wilcoxon, and the one who um, arranged for me to get these pictures, which uh, Mr. DeMille had put in his will that I could have these pictures. That is, he made a note of it, and it never was in his will, but with his will. And he told me orally that when this book was out, I could have uh, selections from uh, thousands of stills that they had taken. And then he died, and I was fearful I would not be able to get them. And they assured me that I would not be able to get them, because Paramount was going to publish its own Bible and use these. And I said, well, Mr. DeMille uh, said I should contact his office when I was ready to go to press, and, and he, he did say that I could have a selection of them. <clears throat> they said, well, sorry about that. But then his secretary got to going around in his safe, and it was attached to his will that I could have a selection. So they limited me to, I think, uh, 22 or something like that, and, and were very reluctant about it. But it was Harry Wilcoxon here who's on page uh, 268. Uh, he's in charge of the troops. Let's see, what did I do? Lose that one? Oh, here it is. Uh, he's on, in charge of the troops here, and he's driving through the, uh, uh, this canyon of water and so forth. That actually is a treadmill. Boy, those horses were just going furiously, and uh, uh, these two men trying to guide them, etc. But the horses and the chair, everything's on a treadmill, going like 60. And all of that's a backdrop. But those horses really were going. And uh, Harry, um, or Henry is his official name, Henry Wilcoxon, we call him Harry. Uh, just a uh, fact famous uh, in the days of your mothers and fathers for uh, his film, he was the hero in the, in, the, in the Crusades, which was a classic of a few years before. But he, came, he became Mr. DeMille's assistant at any event, and, and uh, we've maintained a friendship down through the years. Now, what, uh, Moses heard about the coming of the Pharaoh in advance. Did he tell the people? No, he did not. He waited until, uh, as a matter of fact, there might have been something just a little mischievous about this. Sometimes I've seen this in a prophet where they get some advance notice and they just sit there and say, just wait till this happens. And you know, it's just sort of, <laughs> it's going to be an interesting reaction. Wait till they see this. Uh, and, uh, and you see Moses waiting for them. And notice how casual he is about it when they come saying, well, we should have, you should have let us die uh, back in the slave pits. This is terrible to be massacred out here on the banks of the Red Sea, etc. Oh, they whined and complained. And uh, he says, gather at the beach, gather at the beach. So that seemed like a kind of a stupid command, but anyway, they gathered at the beach and they watched him as he held up that rod and the wind was just blowing. In fact, it blew all night. And they saw that water whip up and actually stand up in walls on either side. And the, the mucky, uh, soil and so forth at the bottom of the sea, just as dry as the desert from which they came. They walked over on dry land, pushed their carts and everything. They had about all night to get through. We don't think it was over 12 miles, and it probably was considerably less. Might have been only three or four miles at this point. And they got crossed over uh, about daybreak, 
by the time they got across. And uh, then the cloud of fire moved right in behind the, the Israelites. And that's when the Egyptians said, aha, now we can go. Uh, don't know what kind of magic they're using. This is really something they got going for them. But anyway, the walls are up, we move. So they moved on in and got well down in the canyon of water before it says their wheels began to mire for some reason. And they began to get a little bit scared. And finally the commander, which apparently was the Pharaoh himself, said, wheel back, turn back. But then it was too late. The last of the Israelites had moved up onto the far beach and the pillar of cloud moved in behind them and uh, down came these walls of water. Now drowning is very fast. It's never more than two minutes. It's all over. And this would come down with such a terrible churning of the water and animals and chariots and human beings in one great massive debacle and catastrophe. And to the amazement of the Israelites who stood there and watched it, an infantry, chariots, the Pharaoh himself, all dead in about two minutes. And then the water churned uh, some of them over to the shore and they saw their, their dead bodies. The enemy was gone. Just at one moment threatened massacre, the next moment nothing. Just the silence of the desert and an open sky above. So Moses raised his voice in praise and then Miriam sang out her song that is in, that is in the scripture of how the, the breath from the nostrils of God swept down upon them and swept them away. That's the, the most that it was if we've got the right place located. We can tell about how wide it used to be. You see, it's all dried up now. Uh, it, has, it has left a couple of lakes. <clears throat> it's swampy territory. It's the area through which the Suez Canal now passes. But the, the archaeologists and geologists are able to estimate about what it would have been. And there's a long neck there that could have been anywhere from 3 to 12 miles wide. But in any event, it took them all night to cross it. And usually a caravan group can go at the rate of about 3 miles per hour. So we think that uh, somewhere between 3 and 12 12 miles. Um, now I had mentioned to you, I think earlier, if I, or then again, maybe I didn't, you should know about the phylacteries that, that uh, devout Jewish people wear because the Lord said in effect, there are certain things I want you to keep in mind. I, uh, I want you to remain a sacred people and a peculiar people unto me. And uh, keep before your eyes or between your eyes these principles. And so they actually roll them up into little tiny scrolls, all nicely carved, written out, and then they're wrapped up and so forth. And, and you'll see them worn around the head, or you'll see them uh, wrapped around and held in the hand, or wrapped around the arm close to the heart and held there. Those are the phylacteries. And they're the scriptures which tell them, which describe how uh, the Lord wants us to live and remember certain passages. Those are the famous phylacteries. Now, um, page 270. After this marvelous miracle of saving their lives, we have something which is not taught in hardly any of the churches, but which was plainly taught by Paul and has been reaffirmed by modern revelation, and namely, 
that Moses, as soon as he had the people in this position, began to teach them the gospel. No opportunity up to now. Just keeping them together and uh, keeping them from fighting each other and getting them fairly organized and taking care of those who were, had sickness and problems and babies being born. That's all I could worry about up to now. But now they're going to take one month to get up to Mount Sinai, almost a month to get there. And on this rather slow, tedious trek, we find Moses teaching these people the gospel of Jesus Christ. And according to Paul, they were baptized in the Red Sea and received the gift of the Holy Ghost. Uh, now Paul says they were taught the whole gospel just like us, but not being mixed with faith. Uh, that it didn't do as much good as it should have done. And for some reason or another, most of the churches have elected not to accept that because they go on the theory that the gospel of Jesus Christ was never taught until Christ came, and that the God of the Old Testament was a God of vengeance and a, a, a cruel God, that Jesus is the God of the New Testament and the God of love. In other words, that religion evolved. This just isn't true. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Adam got the gospel. Enoch got the gospel. Noah got it. Abraham got it. Moses received it. And it was always the same gospel with the same ordinances, the same temple endowment that we have today. Now, uh, they gradually now moved away from the Red Sea and got out into the hinterlands a little bit, out in the wilderness as they moved down toward the Horeb Range, on part of which is Mount Sinai. Um, they hadn't been out very far, as you'll remember, uh, till they uh, reached a place where there was water, but bitter water. And so Moses was told to throw a certain tree in it that it would sweeten it, and the tree, of course, had nothing to do with it. Uh, uh, if he'd been told to pour salt in it, like Elisha did in, in a little later on, that sweetened the water. Uh, it was to do something. Actually, it was divine intervention, and it was changed to sweet water, and they were able to enjoy it. Now, uh, they then moved over into the wilderness of Sin, and then they, ran, they, they got into trouble because they were trying to preserve their flocks until they got to the promised land. And uh, if they all start eating their flocks, they won't have any. And so they've run out of their bread, their unleavened bread, and their rations are nil, and they start complaining like they always did. And the Lord says, all right, I will rain bread. I will rain bread upon you, and uh, they shall have flesh to eat. What I want you to notice is, because you'll get this in your final examination or quiz, is that these miracles are repeated twice, about 40 years apart. They will get water and meat here during the first uh, opening part of their trek. And right at the end, just before Moses uh, takes them over into the Holy Land preparatory to go across the Jordan, these two miracles are performed again water coming out of the rock, and the man, of course, they already had, but because they complained that they needed food, or needed meat, they got it, and it poisoned them, and thousands died because of the way that, uh, the lust for flesh that they had, that God had warned them against. They ate it prematurely and a few other things. Anyway, I just want you to remember these miracles are performed twice. Don't get confused. The number of things in the scriptures that are repeated 
like the war of Gog and Magog at the beginning of the millennium. There's another one at the end of the millennium. And you've got to pay attention to see what the prophet's talking about or you get confused. In your examination, I'm likely to ask you to list four or five unusual things about manna. That's strange stuff. Uh, you have to pick it before the sun comes and melts it. Then you take it and knead it into bread and bake it. Um, it's, um, if you take too much of it, more than you need, it, uh, it spoils. You can't keep it overnight. And yet, um, if you get it on um, the day before the Sabbath, it keeps very nicely for two days on the weekend. It always appears except on the Sabbath day. Saturday morning, no manna. Regularly, for 40 years, it would miss that one day each week. Uh, this is uh, this Dr. Keller. Um, this is called manna. You can get it in a can. You can, they can it, but this is different material. Uh, but it is called manna. Uh, but it actually is a uh, an excretion uh, that uh, you can get off some of the plants over there at certain times. And um, when the pioneers first came down into Provo. They had a terrible time here. As you know, uh, there were several winters when they almost starved to death all through this area. They had three crop failures in the first 10 years they were here. During one of those crop failures, and while they were just beginning to settle Provo, they had a phenomenal thing happen down here along the Provo River. It lasted for four days. And they had uh, a, a, a heavy distillation of white little kernels, almost looked like hailstones. They covered the rocks. They weren't around the territory generally. They were just up and down the Prover River. And they were all over the leaves of the cottonwood trees. And the people could go off and with a pan and just actually scrape it off. And it was sweet and nut-like in flavor. And from all descriptions, it was exactly like this in ancient times. Um, in fact, it's called the miracle of the manna in Provo. Any of you ever heard of that before? Uh, don't, uh, it, the record that I have doesn't describe that, but it says that it was so delicious the people just uh, filled themselves with it. They were so appreciative of it. They were really starving here and in very serious condition, and they had four days in which manna appeared. And it was all up and down the Provo River. Right, 40 years apart. The water came out of the stone twice, okay. and and the quail come twice. Okay. Now, the manna was continuous for 40 years. About the manna? It's in um, several of the journals. It's not published. In fact, I'm thinking of, I'll put it in one of our books if so nobody else does. I could get you the reference. We've written up several little papers on it. But it's, um, it's a well-established uh, church uh, historical event. And it may have been in some publication. I haven't been able to find it. It's just in the journals. Now, uh, I want you to remember a few things about manna. That's one of the things I usually ask you about. Then we had the miracle of the water springing from the rock. And... Uh, <coughs> What kind of meat did they get? How did the meat come? 
Now the Bible reads as though they were, it was one cubic thick. You see, that's about, a, that's about um, nearly two feet thick, depending on what, the, what cubit you're using anyway. Uh, but in any event, um, that evening a great quantity of quail moved in upon the, the hungry Israelites until these low flying birds literally covered the camp. Here indeed was the meat the Lord had promised. And during the night a heavy dew fell upon the rocks and bushes, and the ground which left a residue of substance, it was so new and strange, they gave it the name, what is it? Manna. What is it? All right, now just a word about, um, the Bible reads as though these birds uh, were um, quite thick. Actually, the Septuagint is a better translation where it says that they came in, in other words, they flew in, above the ground. I mean, if, if the birds were that thick, I mean, a couple of feet of birds? <laughs> uh, that's no blessing. That would have been a curse. So um, uh, it, we need the other translation to straighten out uh, what it's talking about. And it means that they, they came in so low to the ground, you used to take an ordinary uh, basket, you see, and just catch them. You had no problem at all getting all you wanted. Uh, they fly right into your arms, practically. Yes. That's the way it was interpreted, you see, for a long time. And, and we just, we realized it couldn't have been that. That's, that would be a, uh, an affliction. And I think the next, uh, the time it occurs, it, it's, it, it even uh, seems to indicate it even more that it was PhD, piled higher and deeper, you know. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, now we have this um, this incident of the water coming out of solid rock. Uh, th these are these are wonderful things, not difficult at all for the Lord to accomplish. And I'll just mention this to you by way of anticipation. This was such a great thing, even for Moses. This was a great thing to be able to do what the Lord says. You walk up to a cliff and water flows out of there, great gushing stream, which uh, apparently kept these people there for over a year, because uh, they, they move once more, but not very far away, and this water seems to have been their central supply. Uh, the next time it happens, Moses takes it unto himself. They, they complain, he goes to the Lord, and he says, now what do we do? It's that old water problem, and the Lord says, well, I've told you what you could do. Uh, you go up to the nearby cliffs here, and I'll bring water out of the rock. And so Moses went back to the people and he says, do we have to always do these things for you? Went up and uh, the water came out all right. But when he got back to camp, the Lord was there to meet him. He said, Moses, why did you take the honor unto yourself? And I guess it shocked Moses because he uh, didn't quite realize that's what he was doing, but he did. He, you know, kind of contemptuous of the people, kind of took that attitude. The Lord says, because of this, thou shalt not go into the promised land. Now, as it turns out, it looks as though the Lord was just using this as an, an excuse. He wanted Joshua to, uh, to take care of that while he translated Moses. But um, later you have Moses just pleading uh, to, uh, please, after all these 40 years, can I go in? The Lord says, when you go up on Mount Nebo, you will never see the people again be the last time you go up. So you got anything you want to settle in the next 30 days or so, you'd better do it. So that's the book of Deuteronomy. The last 30 days 
of the writings of Moses to the people preparatory to his going up to the mount from which he would never come down. That's Deuteronomy. That's the favorite book that Jesus quoted. So this is the great thing about studying the, or the Old Testament. All of a sudden, Leviticus means something great to you. And Numbers is a tremendous chapter. It's not just a book. You, you, you know what happened in Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. These are great books all of a sudden. So that's what we're trying to do for ourselves, to really appreciate this book. Now, they got almost to their destination when their cousins came sweeping down off the plains and started killing off all of those who were at the rear and who were straggling, who were loaded down with what? Gold and silver and precious things. This was a very profitable raid. These Israelites were rich. And it was the Amalekites that came down on them. And the Amalekites um, were Arabs. And uh, their uh, um, Amalek was the grandson of Esau. And they became a great tribe up and down this whole area of the desert. And so they came sweeping down on them. Now, there's one branch of the Arabs. There are many branches of the Arab peoples. This is just one branch. And so Joshua, one of our great ancestors, an Ephraimite, he's made the commanding general. And he's put in charge of the forces that went out to fight. And uh, they didn't do too well. These people have been in slavery for a full generation. They don't know how to fight. They're not very adept at it. And so Moses asked for special blessings of the Lord, and he raised his rod, and their men just seemed to have new strength as they went out, and they began to push back the Amalekites, and, 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 and so pretty soon Moses got tired, and he said, well, that's fine. They're on their way now. And put his hand down, and all of a sudden the tide would turn, and back come the Israelites. So Moses would say, Father in heaven, bless them, strengthen them, make their arms mighty, and, and so they'd surge back again. And so... Um, he gets tired after a while, and, and he learns that he's got to keep that rod up. And so Aaron and uh, her, kind of like counselors, they said, Moses, sit down on the rock, and we'll stand here on each side of you. Keep your arms up. <laughs> and uh, when I was in Old Mexico going to school, the youngest bishop in the church <clears throat> at that time, tw age 23, um, got up to give his humble acceptance speech after he'd been... Uh, inaugurated as bishop in the church, a bishop in Colonial Juarez, and he had selected two very elderly men to be his counselors. He said, I will provide the vigor, and they will provide the wisdom. And like Moses of old, I ask these two men to sustain me and keep my arms upraised when I am weary. I never heard of this story before. So when I got home, I read it, and I thought it was kind of fascinating. This young bishop should know about Moses and the importance of two counselors to sustain him and keep him when he is weary. Then we have the arrival, after the Amalekites were beaten, we have the arrival of um, Jethro, his father-in-law, with his wife and two sons, and undoubtedly Moses, who'd been gone, you see, for several months from his family, delighted to see them. And so he has a big feast and a banquet for his father-in-law, who is the high priest, patriarch of the Midianites, one of the great uh, sheiks and uh, uh, principal leaders of the people in this whole territory. This is his area. This is Midianite territory. This is the chief man. 
So he has this lovely banquet in which he can introduce Jethro to the princes of Israel and they to him. And it's a very nice affair. And the next morning, why Jethro watches his son-in-law Moses as the people just pour into him with all kinds of problems. And at the end of the day, after watching it all day, you have this wonderful wisdom of Jethro. And this is classical. Don't miss this. It will be a year before Moses carries out this instruction. But this is the law of the judges adopted by Mosiah in the Book of Mormon, which is not well understood in the church, either as to its administration or its jurisdiction. So don't miss uh, this part of the scripture. Jethro said, the thing that thou doest, first he asked Moses, what are you doing? Well, he said, I, I have to do this to keep these people organized. And Jethro, the old priesthood administrator, he never divided any Red Sea or had plagues available at his command. He'd just been a loyal, faithful priesthood leader. But he knew this much about how to govern people. And he said, the thing that thou doest is not good, Moses. Thou wilt surely wear away both thou and this people that is with thee, for this thing is too heavy for thee. Thou art not able to perform it thyself alone. Hearken now unto my voice. I will give thee counsel, and God shall be with thee. Be thou for the people to Godward, that thou mayest bring the causes unto God. And thou shalt teach them ordinances and laws, and that show them, and shalt show them the way wherein they must walk, and the work that they must do. Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men, and this is the kind of people we choose for bishops, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers. Now, not just judges. These are administrators. They don't just decide judicial problems. They handle all the temporal affairs of the people. And rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of tens, and later we learn rulers of thousands and rulers of tens of thousands. And um, I want to pick up our story there next time because our present wards and stakes and regions are set up on this basis without our saints quite realizing what happened.